This is the World Bank's Infrastructure Podcast. In today's episode, we discuss public-private partnerships, commonly known as PPPs, and why they're important in a wide range of sectors. Investment needs to support growth are high in critical infrastructure areas, such as energy or transport, but also in other areas, such as education or health. Governments around the world, in poorer and richer countries, have worked with the private sector to do these investments and deliver services to their citizens. Perhaps you know that the Suez Canal, constructed in the 19th century, had private funding, and London's Heathrow Airport's Terminal 5 was the result of a PPP with the British Airport Authority. Well, all these partnerships come in a variety of forms. That is, the nature of the contract with the private financier depends on the project itself, but also on sector, country, and global market conditions. So when should a government think about bringing the private sector into its investments? And what factors are important in this relationship? Well, let's find out how to approach this issue in the infrastructure sector. Good morning and welcome. I am Rumin Islam, host of Tell Me How, and my guest today is Jeffrey Delman, an expert on infrastructure finance, a topic that you no doubt have been hearing a lot about as countries deal with the dual challenge of recovery from the pandemic and investing in a green future. He will be speaking about public-private partnerships in meeting our infrastructure needs. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you, Rumin. Fantastic to be here. Very nice to have you. So let me begin by asking you, Jeff, what exactly do we mean when we talk about public-private partnerships? Public-private partnerships, or PPP, is a contractual relationship between a public sector entity and private sector entity, where the private sector entity undertakes some combination of design, construction, operation, and financing of an infrastructure asset. They do so over a long period of time, so that you have the private sector building and then operating, for example, a road. The private sector designs and constructs the road, operates the road over a period of time, and provides financing for the construction of the road. That's the classic definition. I see. But the definition varies, right, from country to country. So it could be about both financing and management or construction, or it might just refer in a particular case to just say construction, for example, the public sector could finance the building of a road and the private sector would just be building it. It could be that as well, right? There's a huge variety of different structures and it may be that it's an existing road and we're just expanding the road slightly. It may be an existing road and we're, we're, we're bringing in tolling equipment or other mechanisms to manage the road more efficiently. So the different structures vary widely. It also depends on the legal structure of the country that's hosting the PPP. They will, there may be a PPP law or act regulation or just a government policy that's driving the definition of PPP. Okay, so why do governments seek private participation in delivering infrastructure services? What's in it for them? Governments tend to want private sector to help them manage and develop infrastructure in order to gain access to private sector innovation, construction methodologies, efficiencies, 
new sources of financing. Private sector brings a lot of capacities that government may not have. For example, there's an airport that I worked on in Russia, in St. Petersburg, Russia. It's called Pulkovo. And it was a very large investment, 1.2 billion euro investment. This existing terminal need to be torn down, rebuilt, restructured, latest technology, latest approach. But it wasn't just about the construction. It was also about operation. When you're managing an airport, um, the airports can leverage more revenues, bring in more traffic, bring in more tourists based on the relationship with the airlines. And so by bringing in a private investor, in this case, one of the big German airport companies, they were able to bring in the, that company's relationships with different airlines. They're, they're also able to leverage more different kinds of revenues. For example, duty-free. You know, when you walk into an airport and some of them are sort of constrained and uncomfortable, some of them are these beautiful, massive shopping malls. And it's those shopping mall type airports that bring in a huge amount of additional revenues. And that's what the private sector can bring. I'm not exactly sure why the public sector couldn't build the airport and just ask the private sector to come and, you know, have some shops in the terminal. That's actually one of the forms of PPP. So you can split an airport between airside and landside. Actually, there's an airport in Bali in Indonesia. And the government didn't want to give away any of the airport. And so they just brought a private company in to manage the land side, the shopping area. And they turned the airport in this amazing revenues increased by 300% just by having this private company come in and manage the commercial side of the airport. All right. So management can be much better. Construction can be more efficient. There can be new technology brought in and then there's finance brought in. So there are many aspects that you just mentioned. Now, do you think that infrastructure related PPPs are different from those in other sectors? There's such a fantastic variety of types of, of PPP. And there are definitely different approaches taken in different sectors in healthcare and education. We have all these different um, approaches to delivering services of different types. And there's a huge amount that infrastructure PPP learns from um, other social sector and other sector PPPs. Now, um, when we're speaking about um, health or education, I mean, you have infrastructure there as well. They're not that different across sectors. I mean, if you're going to be building a building, <laughs> constructing uh, an edifice, you could do it in any sector and you'd have similar problems or not? I, I, I think the, the problems are very similar, the challenges are very similar, but the solutions are very different. Um, let me give you an example. There was um, in India, the government of India has these old uh, fortresses, beautiful old historical buildings, but they're crumbling. So what do you do? And they bring in private investors to rebuild the buildings but somehow you need to leverage revenues out of that so the private sector can get its revenues. So you create you know, beautiful hotels or, very, or private residences on part of the property, and then the rest of the property is open for public assets and the gardens and all the rest. That raises the same issues that, you'd, uh, that would drive an airport PPP or port PPP, but actually the approaches are quite different. And the, the things that you can learn one from the other are fantastic. Um, so the structures and the, and the issues are all very similar, but the solutions and, and the design and the models that we use are quite different. 
do do PPPs mostly involve some financing by the private sector, or are they generally only management contracts? It uh, depends on your the, the approach to PPP that you're using, but there's generally a, a desire by government to bring in new sources of capital, and so private financing is is very attractive. There are, however, some structures where the amount of private financing is is quite limited. You want the private sector to bring enough money so that they have a, a money on the table. They've got some skin in the game. So that if things go wrong, they are motivated, incentivized to push past those challenges and find solutions. So, Jeff, who are the parties engaging on two sides of a PPP contract? As we said, that's public and private. On the private side, you'll have the project company. The project company is made up, usually made up of a construction company, an operator, uh, but you may also have financial investors. You'll have a whole group of private entities that bring together all the different capacities and and, uh, abilities that will drive development of the project. On the public side, it may be an SOE, it may be a utility, it may be a, a line ministry or a government entity. It may be a ministry of finance um, or maybe a local government. But don't forget that there are a number of other parties involved in a PPP. Um, anything from you know insurance companies and regulators, um, access to lands you're going to need, and most importantly is the local community. The people that really benefit from the project that are on the ground, that live with this project day to day, are one of your most important counterparts. They're also one of your most important enablers. Those people can give you an understanding of project risk, of project success, that no one else will be able to. So that's a a critical partner. Well, basically, they're the ones that are going to be using the service. That's where the demand comes from, right? And where sometimes the payment comes from as well. So it's critical. So going back to, to infrastructure, if we were going to classify different PPPs, how would you do it? What would be the key parameters that you'd be looking at? Let's see, when you're, when you're looking at uh, a PPP, there are a couple of different questions you need to ask yourself, even from the very beginning, when you're first analyzing a structure and trying to think of the best solution to bring to the table. Um, first of all, is this a new asset or an existing asset? And that will change the dynamic completely. Is it a new construction? Am I building a new road? Or am I taking an existing road and expanding it? And the risks involved with the private sector, the risks that the government's going to need to bear will be very different, new new asset or existing asset. It's much larger for the new one, right? Relatively speaking, yes. If you build a whole new road of a four-lane road, it's much more expensive than taking a two-lane road and expanding it to four. And so the, the volume of capital is very different, but also the risk is very different. The risk must be much greater for an unknown road, right? It depends because you'd be surprised how little data there is on existing assets. For instance, water projects have massive problems. Water distribution projects, there are all these pipes underground. No one has any idea where they are. No one has any idea what quality they are. And governments, you'd be amazed because a lot of these systems were built 100 years ago, 50 years ago. And there's no record of any of this. For a lot of the ones we work on, there's no record and people don't even know how much pipe is there, much less how good a shape it is. And so as a private company, you're coming in and you're trying to figure out, they don't even know how many consumers they have. 
I worked on a, a project in Tanzania and the private sector was told, well, you have 100,000 customers. They arrive on day one and find out they only have 50,000 because the other 50,000 customers had either moved or had passed away or were no longer customers. And it's not that the government was trying to cheat them. It's that they just didn't know. And so they gave them their best guess as to how many people they had. But this makes a huge difference to the project. I mean, then if your consumers are cut by half, then you have a totally different project. Anyway, but let's move on. So one uh, form of differentiation is whether it's a new or existing asset. And what are some of the others? Uh, the, the type of service delivery. So, um, and going back to my water project example, if I'm uh, wor- if I've built a dam and I'm treating water and I'm delivering it to a utility, so I'm just delivering it to the water utility. The water utility then takes it to the individual consumers. That's a pretty easy relationship. I have a contract with this one big company. They pay my bills. I'm done. More complicated is when you ask the private sector to treat the water and then deliver it to individual households. And you can imagine the difficulty of collecting money from individual households, making sure where the leaks are, figuring out what the services are. When it's government, the government individual, the consumer relationship is very different than when a private company comes in. And in has what to way? With those users. Well, it depends on the country, to be honest. In some countries, users don't dare cross the government because the government will come down hard on them. In other countries, governments don't bother paying with collecting bills. And so they don't, they don't bother coming after. And then when the private sector comes in, people aren't paying their bills. They're not expecting to pay their bills. And this terrible private company is coming in and asking them to pay for the water they're receiving. And that creates all kinds of tension, frustrations. Um, it, it, it becomes very challenging. So what you're saying is the success of some of these projects really depends on the pre-existing norms and culture in a country. And if you don't take those into account, you can have big problems. This is why you were talking about local communities earlier as well. Absolutely. And in many cases, government tries to use PPP to change those norms. I want people to pay for water and I'm going to use the PPP to force them to pay because this private company is going to force them to pay. And, um, and that's what where happens? Gets, oh, it's a disaster, <laughs> generally okay. speaking, right? And which is why, work, yeah. yeah, which is why we try to do as much early work as possible. We try to spend as much time on the ground working with the community, working with the government, working with potential bidders so that we get all this stuff out of the way in advance. We deal with all these questions early. Now, can we talk about some of the other differences? One of the different um, questions you need to ask is whether it's a new or existing business. If it's a new business, you've got a clean slate, that's a new company that's being created. It's an existing business. You're taking an existing entity that's already being operated and you're asking the private sector to come and help you manage that existing company. And that company is going to have employees, it's going to have liabilities. All of those things need to be passed on to the private sector. Another issue that you want, might want to look at is the source of revenues. And this goes back a little bit to what we talked before about the relationship with consumers. If you're asking a private company to deliver services to a public entity, and collect money from the public entity for the services rendered, that's a very simple relationship, one big entity to another. If you're asking a private company to come in and collect money from consumers, from users across the, the, the gov- uh, across the country, that becomes a much more complicated question. So again, our water company, 
If I'm just collecting from the utility, that's easy. If I'm collecting from individual consumers, what is the history of collecting from them? Do they pay their bills? What do you do if they don't? Can you actually disconnect people? And that's a terrible situation to be in. So all of those things you really need to look at carefully before you structure the PPP. Yes, you know, during the um, pandemic, a government actually asked companies, both public and private, not to cut off electricity, even when consumers couldn't uh, pay their bills. There was a moratorium on payments for in several countries, actually. Anyway, let's um, move on to the financing um, of uh PPPs. Does the private financing share vary considerably? And when might you want a higher share? Yeah, so this is this is a tricky question, but a really, really important one. When we look at the balance between public and private financing for a project, it's the balance between creating a project that is sufficiently financially viable for the investor, but also sufficiently financially viable for the government. The government needs to get value for its money. Any public money that's invested in a PPP needs to deliver value to government, right? We want to see value for that money. It needs to make sense. It needs to not create too much risk, in particular fiscal risk for government. And at the same time, the private sector is going to be driving the same question to make sure that the amount of money it brings results in a revenue stream for the private sector. The trick is that um, often we get very focused on short term, and we get a little blind to what happens down the road. And so the fiscal risk that you're creating for government can be very difficult for government to manage in the the medium to long term. Could you explain that a bit? Why is that different from what they're bearing in the short term? The perception, I understand what I'm going to be paying this year. I understand what I'm going to be paying next year. And because governments work on budgets, that are relatively short-term. If you think about your budget position in five years, 10 years, 15 years, you don't know where you're going to be and you don't know what expensive looks like. There's a tendency to be very optimistic. We're going to be collecting more and more taxes. Our economy is exploding. This is all going to work really well. Um, There's also a tendency to say that's the next government's problem, Um, and which is very true for the private sector as well. We tend to be very short-termist. We look at where we're gonna, what we're going to get now and in the medium term. That long term, need to think about it. So um, what are the types of financial instruments used? And typically, who finances these projects? I'll give you the simple version because there are a huge number of incredibly complex different financial instruments. They're basically equity and debt and government contribution. So government contributes from its side. It may contribute debt. It may contribute equity. It may contribute uh, subsidies. Um, Private sector contributes equity and debt. The equity holders are taking project risk. They get the upside, but they also lose money if the project doesn't work well. Lenders only get their interest. So lenders don't get upside if the project works well. They only take the risk of downside of loss if the project does not work well. So lenders tend to be incredibly conservative. So you have a nice balance of debt, which is very conservative, equity, which is much more aggressive, and government, which is driven by a whole different set of incentives. But a lot of government give guarantees to private investors. Could you talk a bit about this? And do you see this more in certain types of countries rather than others? Guarantees are quite commonly used um, to 
but they're they're also very difficult to use well. So guarantees are basically the government absorbing certain risks in the project that the private sector is not able to manage well. I'll give you an example. On a typical toll road, if you're asking the private sector to take the risk that they're going to be able to attract enough traffic onto this road to make their money, the private sector is going to say, look, we don't control traffic. We don't drive any of the policies that would make for more traffic. We don't, tell, we don't tell people how much tax we're going to put on petrol. We don't tell people what it costs to drive a car. Um, we don't create um, competing roads or competing transport links. So how is it that we can manage this, this traffic? So often for toll roads, governments provide guarantees against traffic levels. So if traffic is too low, the government provides a guarantee to top up the amount of revenue to meet that risk. I hear you, Jeff, that the private investors come in either with equity or with debt, they lend to government. But eventually, as we were saying earlier, this financial investment has to make a return and to be paid back. So in terms of where this money eventually comes from, I guess there are only two sources, the users or government. Does the type of funding used depend on the particular type of service being provided or on something else? Uh, well, I would say it's it's users or taxpayers, because governments have very few sources of revenues outside of taxpayers. And at the end of the day, it, it comes down to government policy, which is more appropriate for the value, the cost of a service to be spread out over just those people that benefit from the service, or should it be spread out over the entire population? And it depends on the government, depends on the service. I personally have a bias toward People that benefit should pay, um, but it depends very much on the system. Well, there are also some distributional issues that the government has to handle. So you can't always have people that benefit paying as much as people that uh, or you know that people that um, may not benefit. I mean, you, some things have to be financed through general tax revenues. For example, if you're worried about distribution or poverty. Yeah, absolutely. But I, and I guess the other side of that is also the incentives. So if the beneficiaries are being subsidized, will they act as a counterpart in the PPP as effectively? So if I'm looking to the community as the third um, leg of my stool, and that community is getting services that are heavily subsidized, will they value the service enough to be a, a partner? And so, but you're absolutely right. There are a number of different drivers that help government work out how they should allocate subsidies and where be where beneficiaries should pay for services. But, but you bring up a very good point there, Jeff, about valuing the service and the incentive uh, to use it uh, according to its value. Now, PPP contracts have several features that need, you know, that need to be customized to the particular project and also to the country. And as you mentioned earlier, they're just extremely complex. So I'm thinking, is it worth the cost? It's a very good question and a really important one to ask very early on. Um, think carefully about what you're doing before diving into it. There are some projects just that aren't worth it. It's too much, too difficult, too much cost up front. And it's, not every project should be done with PPP. In fact, the majority of projects are publicly financed. PPP only uh, addresses a certain slice of our infrastructure needs. Um, second, your lawyer is your friend. Bring in good people to advise you early and to think about these issues so that you design it well. 
And third, be creative. For instance, um, th there are small projects that you do and municipalities have very small projects that they want to deliver with the private sector. You can pool those projects together so that when you fund or that you, you pay for these experts to come in and help design, you can help them have them design 20, 30 projects all at the same time. That's some excellent advice. Um, I, but I also understand that there are instances of these arrangements not working out. So could you speak briefly um, and broadly about why this might be so? Uh, I'm sure there are many reasons and we're going to need another podcast for that. But if you could just lead us in that direction, broadly speaking. So it's a really good question. A lot of PPPs fail because of lack of communication. You need to talk a water project I worked on in Africa, the two sides, the private sector and the public sector, were having problems. They were mad at each other. They were angry about different things. They both saw the other as being at fault, but they didn't want to talk. They were too embarrassed to raise these issues with each other and just got worse and worse and worse and finally exploded. And it ended up with the government putting the private sector um, CEO and CFO on an airplane in handcuffs and sending them back to their country. Um, often the expectations are unrealistic. So if you don't do your homework first and you're expecting the PPP to deliver something that's unrealistic or the private sector is expecting a PPP to be really easy or really profitable and they haven't done their homework, you've got to think carefully about what your expectations are and design the project to deliver realistic deliverables. I guess it's not just expectations in the broad sense, but really about doing the proper technical analysis, the proper economic analysis, the financial analysis of, of the projects. And in that sense, you know, you mentioned earlier over-optimism, thinking that the growth in users would be much higher, for example, than they actually uh, end up being. But how do developing countries with, you know, having limited capacity, not that much data, limited experience, how do they manage with PPPs? In developing countries, it's it's tricky. I mean, frankly, it's tricky in developed countries. But in developing countries where you have even less capacity, where you have you have even less experience with public and private sector working closely together, it requires much more. And so we have to be more cautious. We have to be more careful. We have to do more work up front. Um, there are a lot of development partners who are out there wanting to help. So they take the experience they have from their home country and they bring it to the benefit of the developing country. They'll bring funding to provide advisors and technical capacity, training. There's a lot of work that can be done to slowly build up the capacity of these developing countries. Um, but you just have to be really careful and deliver properly and simply as possible. Don't try to be overly clever and overly complicated. So particularly at the beginning, you'd want to start with simpler, maybe even smaller projects, getting to know um, the country, and then over time, building it up. And I guess uh, because the initial costs of getting to know the environment, because they're kind of high, you might see investors going repeatedly back into the countries they already know, rather than investing in new countries, which in, you know might end up being very profitable for them. So sometimes that happens, I presume. Uh, absolutely. And, the, and the, the trick is that ideally you use smaller projects and build up your experience, but it's hard to spend all this money to develop a PPP capacity to do small projects. And also governments are often most excited about the big, huge projects. That's what gets their attention. 
And that's often the project that they don't want to fund, use their own money for. They want to use private money for. So let's do PPP on these big, massive, politically driven projects. It's really difficult to get that balance right. There are many issues on both sides. Now, is there a lot of PPP financing from local investors in low and middle income countries? Unfortunately, generally speaking, no. This is the ideal, right? We want to develop local capacity. We want to bring in local and regional investors. That's that's far more interesting from a developmental perspective, but also from a cost perspective. Local finance is in local currency. And so it matches your currency or revenues. If you've got your toll road and you're earning money in local currency, but your financing is in US dollars or euro, you take that exchange rate risk, which can be really, really expensive. And so ideally use local currency, but local banks won't know how to finance these kind of projects and may not have the capital. Local investors won't have the experience. So usually we fold those local investors and local financiers into consortia and we require foreign investors to bring in local partners, and that slowly builds up the capacity locally. By we, you mean the World Bank working on projects? People, people advise, anybody will do this, right? Anybody advising government on how to develop projects will advise government to bring in local investors, and it helps you manage risk on a number of different levels. And also, I guess that means um, building up the domestic financial sector. Absolutely, and both capital markets and debt. Thank you. That that was a lot of information, and there, I learned a lot from you, Jeff. Thank you. Is there anything you'd like to add before we end today? Um, just that PPP has got great potential, but all, could also be a complete disaster. So approach carefully, invest well, and you'll have a nice marriage. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jeff. Thank you, Ruben. Thanks. Well, listeners, here are some things we learned today. Firstly, the term public-private partnership is used to refer to a range of agreements between governments and the private sector, such as private management, design or construction, and financing of investment to support the provision of public goods and services. Secondly, some important features need to be considered in these arrangements as they influence the risks and complexity of each contract. Namely, whether the private sector is investing in a new or ongoing business, investing in a new asset or improving an existing one, whether it has to deal directly with the ultimate consumer, households, or just the government, and finally, what is the source of revenue for the private entity. Thirdly, PPPs do better when the community they are designed to serve is consulted. Finally, the success of PPPs depends to a large extent on how well prepared they are in terms of realism and thoroughness of the economic and financial analysis and how clearly the rights and responsibilities of the different parties are outlined in the legal contracts and how well managed they are. Thank you and bye for now. If you'd like to suggest topics for the future, please email us at tellmehow at worldbank.org. We look forward to hearing from you.